This is Bloomberg Business Week. I'm Carol Masser. And I'm Jason Kelly. We're here every day bringing you the latest news from the world of business and finance. Plus technology, politics, economics, all harnessing the power of Bloomberg Business Week reporters and editors. Not to mention our 2,700 journalists and analysts in more than 120 countries. You can download Bloomberg Business Week on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Bloomberg.com. You can also listen to our radio show weekdays at 2 p.m. Eastern, only on Bloomberg Radio. So, Jason, obviously one of the big stories we're watching uh, is the chipmaker space because uh, shares of chipmakers, they're sliding today. This is shares of NVIDIA took a hit. That stock alone down 15% as we speak, falling the most in two months after cutting its outlook for fourth quarter revenue. So let's get into NVIDIA and really the chip group overall. Ryan Vlastelica, he is equities reporter. He covers tech media and telco for us here at Bloomberg. He's in our Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studio, along with Angelo Zeno. He's senior equity analyst at CFRA Research. He joins us on the phone in New York. But Ryan, I do want to kick it off with you. Talk to a little bit uh, about what we got from NVIDIA. Not all chip companies are the same, but tell us with NVIDIA down so much, maybe why investors should be worried about the the chip space overall. Mm -hmm. Well, the chip space has really been uh, incredibly volatile for the past several months. Investors are worried about uh, demand slowing, about high levels of inventory, and really the, the bull bear back and forth has really been you know, there's been a real tug of war over sentiment here. And last week, it seemed like things were getting a little bit better. We had some strong results uh, from Texas Instruments, from Lamb Research, and so forth. This kind of like made people think maybe the worst is over. Maybe things have, maybe they put in a bottom. Maybe things are going to start recovering from here. Now you have NVIDIA coming out. It cut its outlook. It's talking about weakening macroeconomic conditions, especially in China, which is a uh, market that these companies have tremendous exposure to. Because they sell chips to all the stuff that's made in China, correct? Absolutely. Yeah. Um, I think some of these major names get something like 45% or more of their revenue from yeah. from China. So if it's weakening there, that's something obviously going to have a, a major impact for the, for the business overall. Um, so when you see this, it does bring back these new fears about, or rather these old fears about what demand is going to look like, whether these stocks are overextended, if they have more weakness into them. Remember, right. NVIDIA fell fit more than 50% from its peak uh, in the wake of its fourth quarter results in November. People were kind of like, maybe now it's finally bottom, but now you're seeing this again and maybe right. people are saying like, oh, it's not over yet. Are we still having prices in fully? Are things slowing more than even our reduced and, estimates indicated? And I just want to point out, um, the SOX was up more than 4% last week, and um, the SOX is up about 17% uh, since that December 24th low. Right. So, Angelo, come on in here, because as Ryan rightly points out, it, it feels like we haven't gotten a really clear signal, or maybe this is the clear signal, about the the chip makers and the chip equipment makers. Uh, how do you account for this sort of disparity, it feels like, in, in opinions and guidance? Yeah, so, you know, it's, it's interesting. So when we look at the, the semiconductor space here, obviously there are a number of different cycles um, within a cycle. Right. And, you know, when we kind of look at semiconductors in general, um, the areas that have really gotten hit the hardest um, are the names that appear to be faring the best here this earnings season. Specifically, we're looking at names, you know, specifically within the memory space, like a Western Digital last week, as well as the semi-equipment makers, like a LAM Research. Um, and not to mention today, there was actually a, a deal announced within the chip equipment space, that being, you know, it's a low-key name, but Integris um, acquiring a, a company called Versum, which we think is actually helping prop some of these um, equipment names in general. Um, but that being said, you know, some of the beaten up names we think are performing the best because the, the estimate cuts have just gone to a point, we think, where you're nearly in the fourth quarter of those uh, cuts being announced. Assuming we have 
a favorable trade deal on the horizon. Now, you know, when you kind of look at the areas that have held up the best within the semiconductor space, it's been the data center arena. It's been the names like um, an Intel, um, which, you know, last week uh, reiterated, reiterated numbers, but that right. being said, isn't, we believe, believable. And as a result, we actually downgraded the name um, on the results. And, you know, you kind of look at an NVIDIA here. I think, you know, you look at an NVIDIA, They've really done well over the last three years, and it's kind of all coming down on them hard now, um, whether it be on the pricing side of things um, or what have you. But that, we think, is is a, a name that should be looked at a little bit differently than the rest of the chip space, and not to mention it's such a widely held name. Um, we're not necessarily surprised to see it perform the way it is today. However, you do say in some research out, um, Angelo, is that we you're not you're anticipating no growth for the semiconductor industry in 2019. Ryan, come on back in. I mean, what are you hearing from your sources as you're writing your stories reporting on the space about the outlook for the year? Well, one common theme for today when it comes to NVIDIA is that a lot of people were expecting a disappointment in the revenue, but a lot of them were kind of surprised by the magnitude mm-hmm. of how much the revenue forecast went down. We have been seeing uh, some other signs of this. Last week, we had Intel mm-hmm. uh, came out with its quarterly results, and it kind of indicated you know, no growth, and it was a little bit disappointing. Uh, NVIDIA, you know, is, you know, it's a high-growth stock in a lot of these very highly followed areas of semiconductors, like gaming, like, you know, data center, like automobiles and so forth, things that are somewhat viewed as a proxy for um, just broader economic growth, and also just in general, like, when it comes to the stock sentiment and, you know, where growth may be going from here. Angelo, going to give you the final word here. You know, what's the next big leg uh, for the the chip makers? Either the next big name you really want to hear from, or the next piece of data, more broadly economically, that will give you a sense of where we are in the mega cycle, and then within, as you say, some of those cycles within the cycle. Well, it's interesting because when I kind of think of the the next phase here, um, I don't necessarily need to hear that much more from what some of these chip makers are saying because. Let's face it, the visibility is very low here, um, mm-hmm. and trying to call a, a bottom is extremely difficult for these companies. I think the next area of focus really should be on their customers and what they're doing, um, exactly what it was going on with Apple and, and iPhones um, when they report tomorrow night, um, what is going on with uh, some of these big cloud providers, both within the U.S. with the likes of, let's say, uh, Microsoft, Amazon, uh, Facebook, Alphabet, as well as what's going on. Um, in China with the likes of, let's say, Alibaba, um, Tencent, and Baidu. So it'll be interesting to kind of see um, what some of these key large customers are saying um, from a CapEx perspective, because we think at the end of the day, those are the companies that are going to provide the visibility for these chip makers um, and really will dictate kind of the next leg um, of where these names are going. Got it. Yeah, looking for some kind of consensus out of all of these tech names and what it says. Um, Angelo, thank you so much. Angelo Zeno, Senior Equity Analyst at CFRE Research on the phone in New York City. Ryan Lestelica, he is equities reporter covering tech, media, telecom here at Bloomberg News in our Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studio. Shares of NVIDIA right now down more than 15%. This is Bloomberg. Come together. All right, so we'll see how many companies manage to get together. It's a volatile equity market, and obviously coming out of the government shutdown, a little uncertainty about the data and what that portends for the U.S. and the global economy for the balance of 19. To help us understand where the M&A world is going, we bring in Howard Lanzer. He is head of global debt advisory at Baird out in Chicago. That's where he joins us 
on the phone. Howard, nice to be with you. Thanks for joining Carol and myself. Yeah, thanks for having me again. Good to be here again. Uh, so tell us about the M&A world right now. Are we getting a sense that deals are going to get done? You know, we're into, as we've been talking about, uh, a market that's still trying to find its way, but sometimes that pretends opportunity. It definitely does. And as you think about where we came into this year, we had a December to remember, but it was all for the wrong reasons, right? We weren't uh, living a car commercial where we had a, a shiny new car with a red bow. It kind of felt like we were creating off a cliff to a certain extent. I mean, we had the uh, dollar volume in the M&A market was down about 76%, which was the lowest total since 2014. And then the leverage and loan market and the high yield markets, which really are the lifeblood of M&A, we saw the lowest monthly total in the leverage loan market <clears throat> since December 2015. We had new issue loan volumes um, that were something that we hadn't seen in quite some time with uh, spreads picking up about 175 to 200 basis points. And the high yield market, we all heard, completely dried up in December. And we had high yield issuance in total down about 40% in 2018, which was the lowest volume year since 2009. And just to put a little bit more salt in the wound, we had over $35 billion pour out of the high yield mutual funds, which was the highest yearly figure in the eight-year data set. So as we entered into January, there was a lot of concern of where was this market going? You know, where would the fuel, the debt fuel to, right. to kind of keep the M&A market going, going to come from? And so, you know, we had a little bit of thaw early in January. We did see some new issuers come and test both the leverage loan markets and the high yield markets. The volumes are definitely down from where they were uh, a year ago. But when starting from zero and getting to somewhere is actually a positive sign. So we think overall, most people, while we're still cautiously optimistic, think that as more deals come to the market, uh, we'll get some traction and that we think that perhaps the back end of this quarter will accelerate pretty similar to what we saw in the 2015, the end of 2015, the beginning of 2016. Well, it's interesting that you say that on a day when we had Comscope holding um, coming out, it's in the market with the largest U.S. high yield bond sale in more than a year. And mm -hmm. our reporters, Molly Smith, who comes on with us and chats about this market, saying it's the latest sign that the rebound is enticing more issuers. Uh, it's borrowing $3 billion to help fund its acquisition of Aris International. So we are starting to see it come back. Definitely. And I think what you're seeing, too, is that investors, after we had those massive outflows at the end of last year, we actually had a nice reversal uh, in the first couple of weeks of January, where about $4 billion came back into the high-yield market. There weren't a lot of deals and people that were brave enough to go into the market. But then, as you saw with this most recent deal, those that are going in um, that have nice large issues that can come out and do something in size, investors are, are, are clamoring for them. So we are seeing investors come back in that institutional market, coming back looking for yield, and those are pricing relatively okay. And so if we keep that kind of momentum going, mm. we think that we could have a pretty interesting quarter. So Howard, as you go a level down in terms of who the issuers are, who the deal makers are, anything that you can pick out in terms of areas, sectors, uh, types of companies that may be especially uh, ripe for deal making here? Yeah, and healthcare has always been a stalwart in the M&A market and in the financing markets, almost kind of irrespective of what's going on, uh, because there's a embedded demand in those types of sectors and, and those types of companies that are out there. So healthcare technology, certain areas of technology have been strong. I think where you're seeing 
the most trouble are in the cyclicals and anyone that really touches a, a recession where you could have massive volatility if things like interest rates move quickly, global growth doesn't come to uh, fruition in terms of the way people think it's going to, if there's any kind of trade issues lingering with the U.S. and China, politics, I mean, we won't even get into the disaster that Washington seems to be these days. Uh, but those are the big key areas, and those affect the cyclicals more than any other. Uh, sectors that are out there. So you're seeing a high lo higher level of scrutiny, both in terms of the leverage loan volumes, high yield volumes, which then indirectly and directly actually goes into what can be funded for M&A. Howard Lanzer, head of global debt advisory at Baird, joining us on the phone from Chicago. Thank you, as always, for your insights. Now, it's interesting, though. We are seeing, you know, that that leverage market come back uh, a little bit. We'll see if it continues. I think some of the data points and what we hear from the Fed and more corporate earnings will help uh, shape that. Facebook Watch. Wait, what? Yes, yes, it's a thing, but not as much of a thing as Facebook would, would like it to be. Here to explain, uh, Sarah Fryer. She's technology reporter at Bloomberg News. She's in our Bloomberg 960 studio in San Francisco. Her story featured in the upcoming issue of Bloomberg Business Week magazine. It's out later this week. Her story also on the Bloomberg and at Bloomberg.com as we speak. So um, you and myself and Jason, we had a conversation earlier uh, today about Facebook Watch. Watch. I mean, I gotta admit, and I keep up on most things. I had no idea. You're pretty what with it. Was. it. <laughs> She's pretty with it, Sarah, and she did not know that this was a thing. So, why don't more people know that this is a thing? Well, Facebook hasn't really put stuff there that we feel like we have to go see. Um, it's something that they've tried to create basically out of out of nothing. They wanted to create a video destination um, by buying up all of these very small name shows and scattering them there. But people don't know what to expect when they go there, and they don't even know why they would want to. Mostly when you're using Facebook, you're using it in this passive experience while you're waiting in line, while you're uh, waiting for your car. You know, you have the phone, um, you're scrolling through, and then something else happens and you're distracted. That's what people use Facebook doing. They don't use Facebook for this sort of intentional layback experience like you do when you cuddle up on your couch to watch Netflix. Well, and the reason they got into this, right. obviously, was more and longer engagement that they could then sell to advertisers, right? And but it's just that people don't it, they they don't think of Facebook that way. They they look at Facebook as more of a friend, not a, a meaningful long-term relationship, right? Well, that's one of the craziest things I learned in reporting out this story that back in 2016, when Facebook Watch was first conceived, that the company had a problem where 45 minutes a day on average was the use time for an average Facebook user. But that was all happening in very short spurts, less than 90 seconds a session on average. So really, people are just scrolling through their feeds, getting distracted by what they think is interesting, clicking on some stuff, commenting on some other stuff, and then moving on and opening the app possibly later to do it all over again, see what's new. They weren't coming to look for something specific. And Facebook Watch is about creating that kind of new 
behavior. And so far, only 75 million people around the world are using it. Now, that seems like a big number, but not if you consider that Facebook's overall user base is 1.5 billion daily users. It's like a, it's not you, it's me. No, actually, Facebook Watch, it is you. <laughs> it's just interesting because they're spending a fair amount of money, uh, of money right? About a billion dollars to program it, but they haven't had any hit. I mean, is this what they're going for, though? Do they need to have a Netflix or Hulu or Amazon type hit for it to start to get some momentum or what? They either need it to be like that or they need it to be a place where people are creating video on their own um, where, you know, kind of like YouTube, where you have all these creators that are coming up with fun ideas and putting it out there and seeing what resonates. Um, I think by starting with these sort of high end creators, maybe the, the B or C or D list people that they've hired to do the shows for Facebook Watch, what they haven't gotten is this really vibrant community like there is on on YouTube or even on Instagram. And so what does it tell us more broadly about the strategy here that's going on at, at Facebook, Sarah? Because, you know, this has not been a, a great trailing 12 months for that company between congressional testimony, between being implicated, you know, pretty dramatically in a lot of what's been going on as it relates to the 2016 election, between just sort of general questions about the social good of social media. Uh, how does this fit into the to the broader narrative? that you're seeing play out? So the broader narrative is very different than what people are evaluating Facebook's stock on. Facebook investors, you know, they're hearing all of what you're saying about the regulatory concerns and the data breaches, and those are all very concerning things. But so far, they haven't had a dramatic impact on the bottom line. And what investors are currently the most concerned about is Facebook said that its revenue growth was going to slow down, that basically it's reached a saturation point in some of its highest earning markets and that they need to find new ways to grow. And the future of Facebook's business is going to rest on whether they can figure out how to make money off of things like Facebook Watch, but also Instagram and WhatsApp and Facebook Messenger, all these things beyond the main app. So, you know, this is this is something that would be very concerning to investors because this is about the future of Facebook's business, about taking that 45 minutes and, and doubling it. Uh, and so far, it looks like it's going to be harder to get to that point than it has been for them to get to this point. Earnings coming up this week. What do we need to know? Well, we need to take a look at these new business initiatives. So far, Facebook, I would say like the, the big theme for Facebook this year is promises. They're promising a lot on the privacy front. They're promising a lot on, on how they're going to clean up their platform. But they're also promising that they're going to be investing in these new businesses, advertising on messaging services, advertising in these, these sort of ephemeral video formats called stories, and things like Facebook Watch. They're saying that this is early days, that they're building it out, that it's going to be great. But investors will really, will really be hanging on every word about how well that's going and how long it's going to take. But it's interesting, too, as you point out, if you tap on the little red dot and you go into it, you say it's kind of a thin lineup in case, you know, if you go looking for something to watch. And then you're, it seems like you're bombarded by ads as you go through the process, which seems to be kind of annoying. 
Well, Facebook needs to figure out how to return on their own investment in this service, right? They've spent about a billion dollars to to get this content. They've told investors that they're going to continue to spend to grow these new lines of business. And that heightened spending needs to come with higher performance. Uh, and what Facebook has been saying is that its margins are actually going to be narrowing in the coming quarters. And for things like Facebook Watch, they started out saying that they're not going to have any advertising at the beginning of videos. Now they do have that a little bit. They started out saying they would only have mid-roll advertising in the middle of the videos. Now they have some banner ads and they have some other ways that they're making money. So they really need to figure out the business models for all of these new areas. Um, some advertisers have told me that Facebook Stories and Instagram Stories, while that's a really exciting new area, those ads are harder to make. So, you know, if we look at, at Facebook's future, it's a lot more tentative. There's a lot more open questions about how well that's going to work. It's not going to be as easy as simply adding more people to Facebook itself because the company has really run out of members of the Internet. Right. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> Not growing as fast as it once was. Sarah Fryer, tech reporter for Bloomberg, all over Facebook. Thank you so much. She joined us from our 960 studio there uh, in San Francisco. Let's talk to our next guest. Mark Gimbroni is with us. He's managing director, equity portfolio manager at Barrow Hanley. Approximately $86 billion in assets under management based in Dallas in our Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studio on this Monday. Nice to have you back with us. Back good afternoon. You walked in and you're like, God, it's good that the fourth quarter's over. <laughs> no question. It, very different this quarter. It feels like it. I, there were a lot of things all coming together in the fourth quarter. <clears throat> Obviously, we had a concern about the Fed yep. and how fast they were going to raise rates, and that was leading to a slowing economy concerns and global slowing economy. On top of that, we had tariff concerns. And, and since then, at least, we've gotten some better news on the Fed side, for sure, with them saying they're going to slow down now, become more data dependent. There's even conversations around their balance sheet now and maybe pulling back the, the unwinding of that. So I think on one side, we're getting much better news starting this year than we did in the fourth quarter. Why is that good that the Fed is nervous about the market volatility? Because, right, isn't the thinking that if the Fed could get back to normal, the more that it can get back to normal means our world, our economic environment, our market environment, our corporate profit environment is back to normal. 100% correct. Carol, but let me say this. I'm not suggesting they're nervous. What I'm saying is they've done their job in their mind. They've raised rates now to a point where they feel like it's having some impact on inflation rates, et cetera, which is one of their goals. We obviously still have full employment, but we're not seeing a lot of outsized inflation levels anywhere outside of really wage growth. And so they're able to pause, I guess, is what's more important. But would they have paused if we didn't have that market volatility in the fourth I, quarter? I, I believe yes. I, I don't believe it's not one of their inputs. So having said that, they're not going to ignore what's happening. But I think hopefully they're not just going to take the market as their only signal. They need to be looking at broader things, obviously related to economic activity, related to inflation, related to wage, related to employment. And all of those things, frankly, I think were looking pretty good and very strong throughout last year. And then what the market was reacting to, what they're probably reacting what was to, the which is numbers were a little slower. Though? What was the market? Well, we're starting like, to see. What happened, right, that we went from, hey, everything seems pretty okay, to all of a sudden, no, everything's falling apart. Well, I think. To me, um, fall, falling apart again is a relative thing. So I do believe that, yes, we're slowing. We, well, we got almost a, uh, you know, we got a correction. We almost went into a bear market in the S&P 500. That's pretty significant. And, and I think that actually created a lot of opportunities. Um, so the fourth- no, that's fair. But, but I mean, what it, was, there, was it justified, that movement? Um, or do you think people got it, investors got it really wrong? 
generally the market tries to look forward and make its best guess. It took a guess that things were getting really bad. I think, yes, it overshot without question. Again, slowing is not a recession, right? We did have extra fiscal stimulus last year. It, it, it boosted earnings growth. Earnings are going to be a little slower this year because a third of our growth came just from taxes last year. That doesn't mean we're going into a recession. And we're going to have positive growth this year. We're having positive earnings. And so again, but it's less than it was before. And an example, now the Fed can take a look at that and say, hey, things are a little slower than they were before. We don't need to continue to rush and push rates higher. We've done our job. We've slowed things down a little. That's part of our job. And so now as we look forward, you know, let's take a pause and let's be more data dependent. I think the market likes that reaction. All right. So we're headed into earnings season in a pretty meaningful way this week, as Carol alluded to at the top of the conversation. We got two reports uh, that people were not excited about uh, this morning between Safe Caterpillar say, yeah. uh, and NVIDIA really uh, helping drag the market down. What are you hearing so far? You've got some big names, I think, in your portfolio reporting later this week. What do you need to hear to give you some confidence on the earnings side? Sure. Um, Well, let me start by saying I do think the more global you are right now, you're seeing some issues. Okay, Mm -hmm. so tariffs are having a real impact. So when you hear Caterpillar, you hear Stanley Works, you hear some of these other major global industrial companies come out and say, hey, you know, things aren't as good as we thought they were or our costs are going to be higher than they thought we were. Um, those are real issues that are happening. So we do see wage inflation. We do see commodity cost inflation. We do see transportation cost inflation. And then we also see a weakening in demand directly related, in my mind, to some of these tariff talks. We, we discussed why was the fourth quarter so bad. We talked about, well, the Fed was one of the reasons. Maybe that's getting a little better. Well, at this point, we saw you know a conversation today about Cudlow coming out and talking about China. We saw, you mentioned, Carol, that the market bounced on that, right? I mean, in my mind, it bounced on part of that for sure. The fact that we're trying to resolve this tariff issue is the next major thing out there, but it's clearly having an impact on earnings today. So who do you like? I mean, I'm just looking at some of the names you hold. I know Microsoft is a name I think we've talked to you uh, about before. Of the tech names is that sort of your number one especially in this world of defanged fangs yeah, that we're living in well it, it's a fantastic company clearly um, and a good portion of that the, the nice thing about tech in some ways is there is a continued push toward capex and that growing capex percentage being that of tech right so if you're looking at microsoft or cloud or data etc those things continue to grow within the enterprise space and so there is always questions around what's happening with the pc etc and on the mm-hmm. consumer side that's one issue but but around business and mm-hmm. around you know the use of data the storage of data you know where to put it exactly relative to the cloud and how to access it that continues to grow and microsoft is a dominant player there that continues to take share and so we like what we see there again not not growth to some degree like you see some from the fang uh, companies but still a very solid business good growth and obviously you can lean back on great balance sheet other things hey mark it is a growth and income fund so what's the criteria for putting a name into your portfolio sure there's generally three things we look at so price to earnings below the market price to book below the market and a yield price to premium earnings, price to the to market book. okay i'm sorry so and a yield time? premium to the market a yield premium to the market. Okay, That's cool. what the fund overall will always have. Have you increased ha- cash holdings? Have you reduced cash holdings? So for us, we feel like if, if a customer gives us money, it's to put it in the market. So we never carry much cash. It's okay. just transactional at most. It's not up to us to consider cash as a defensive mechanism. Yeah, you don't have much there. It's like No, we, we generally, like I said, transactional three or less. Yeah. You know. Good stuff. Mark Jimbrody, Managing Director and Equity Portfolio Manager at Barrow Hanley, uh, based down in Dallas here with us in New York today. Always good to catch up with you. Thanks for stopping by. Tell me Well, it's certainly a complicated world we're living in. Carol Masser, if yes. we needed any 
uh, evidence of that just listen to the last 45 minutes or so, uh, including those speakers that we had down at the podium at uh, the White House talking everything yeah. from Venezuelan sanctions to... Around the world we went. Right. Meeting with uh, Chinese trade negotiators uh, to another potential government shutdown. And we haven't even talked about uh, everything else that's happening in the world. Joe Kalish is back with us. He is chief global macro strategist for Ned Davis Research. He's based down in lovely Venice, Florida, but he's here with us in chilly New York City today. <laughs> Joe, great to have you back uh, with Carol and myself. So... What do you make uh, of all this, especially as you know? You heard Larry Kudlow talk about the perceived, real, some sort of economic impact of this government shutdown uh, over the past three weeks, not even getting into the potential for another one. How do you feel about the economy right now, given the, the twists and turns we've taken so far in 19? Yeah, so when we look at something like the shutdown, you look at some of the past history, it has an impact – uh, in the current quarter, but then you tend to recover pretty quickly. So the bet you'd have to make for this to really have a sustained impact is that we go into another shutdown for another long period of time. But, but normally you see economic activity bounce back, and, and it's, it's usually just sort of a, a blip. Well, that, all right. So what does this mean then for the corporate earnings picture? Because I think that's what's key in terms of whether yeah. or not market momentum continues to the upside at this so point. I don't think it's, it's necessarily, you know, the, the government shutdown, but it's all the other policy uncertainties that's leading corporations to kind of just freeze in their tracks, right? They're not quite sure what to do. And then when you turn it over to the Fed, it's not only the policy uncertainty, but it's the data uncertainty because the government's been shut right, down. So right. it's like flying an airplane with some of the gauges blacked out. You don't have all of the instruments at your disposal that you'd like to use to gauge policy. So what do you do? You tend to pull back and do nothing. So the Fed's going to be on, on hold. And, and I think that's the way businesses are, are looking at it as well, is that until we get some clarity, some, un- some of this uncertainty you know, out of the way, that we're going to be cautious and play close to the best. But if we did not have that market sell-off that we saw in the fourth quarter, Joe, would we be having a different conversation, a very different conversation, and especially when it pertains to like Fed policy and so on? Was it really all about, and, and are we justified in kind of freaking yeah, out about what happened I, with the markets? I, I think there was some justification first. So, so when you look at, at what happened in December, um, there were not only the political uncertainties, trade uncertainties, and, and, and things that sort of, and, and then you had a period of illiquidity, but, uh, which, which really helped exacerbate some of the moves. But you really did have um, you know, the Fed sort of creating a problem in investors' minds by saying that you know, they're still looking for additional rate hikes in 2019, the balance sheet was on autopilot, and then you had the president basically attacking the Fed as an institution, saying yeah. he was, they were going to try to look to f- f- uh, fire chairman as, uh, Powell as the chairman of the Fed. So you know, all that rhetoric changed um, you know, post-Christmas Eve. Right. Uh, the, the administration started walking back it's, it's attacks on Powell and talk about policies. They attack the policies. Well, that's something, you know, we can deal with. And then Powell himself kind of you know, said, well, you know, we're, we're going to be patient. Right. So I think it, it did really affect things. I mean, there, there, there were some, some things that, that went on. 
But uh, it wasn't it, because it, it, CEOs were coming out and saying, oh, my God, we're not going to make any money anymore. <laughs> it wasn't. like it, I guess no. I just, you know, we have these conversations about, you know, setting policy by the financial markets, maybe not always the best thing to do. Well, well, that, that, was, that was another point I, I was going to make. So th- the Fed was pretty cavalier when they say, oh, you know, 10% down in the market is, is not a problem. We, we, we ignore that and whatever. And it got to be 20%. Oh, my God. You know, it's a different now we know, story. We're not now, it. now we're not ignoring it. So I think uh, investors were trying to gauge the, a, a power put, if you will. And 10% was not enough. 20%, we, we got there. So somewhere in between that 10 and 20% is where the Fed kind of blinked. And I think that's what made the difference. So in two days, we're going to hear again from the Fed. Yes. And we're going to hear uh, from Chair Powell in a press conference. If you got to ask him one question, what would it be? So if they haven't made an announcement, the question I would ask is, when are you planning to end the balance sheet? So I'm glad you brought that up because I feel – so this is the third time during this show that someone has brought up the balance sheet. That seems to be where all the focus is This is where where the focus is, right? Because it's really the change in liquidity in the markets, Mm -hmm. right? Uh, So – and it's not just about the Fed. And and people sometimes, I think, make too much of the Fed. But this has gone on globally. You know, the ECB stopped buying bonds. The Bank of Japan has cut back – on bonds, even though they say they're, they're still accommodative in their pur- purchases. Uh, and the slowdown in, in global growth has slowed down reserve growth. But now, since the beginning of the year, you know, had a little bit change in tone. The Fed says they're going to be cautious. You know, Draghi was saying, well, maybe things are weaker than we expected. You know, so people are pushing out expected rate hikes there. Uh, China has been cutting its policy. Uh, you know, reserve, reserve requirement ratios, its, it's yields have fallen. So, so, so they, they've kind of eased up on policy as well. Bank of Canada has kind of been putting things on hold. Bank of England's putting things on hold. So all of a sudden you have a very big change uh, in, in the in the rate of change of global liquidity, which I think was a big negative in Q4. All right, Joe Kalish, good to get some time with you in this new year. He's chief global macro strategist over at Ned Davis Research, based in Venice, Florida, in our Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studio on this Monday. Thanks for listening to Bloomberg Business Week. You can subscribe to the podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Bloomberg.com. You can also listen to our radio show every weekday at 2 p.m. Eastern, only on Bloomberg Radio.